This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Like sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R102.7 FM. Good evening and welcome to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse 3 RRR's weekly nervous glance at the future and how we might respond to it. It's a bit environmental, a bit economical, it's a little bit systems thinking, farming, food, all sorts of stuff and sometimes gardening. Uh, thank you very much, Vaughan Quinn, for the last three hours of Double Bounce, as he does each Tuesday uh, with much gusto. He will be back next week. Bushy's my name, and I'm in the studio this evening with... Uh, what did I call you earlier, Jed McCartney? Um, assembly technician. Assembly technician. You take all of our random thoughts and outbursts and assemble them into a cohesive structure, and uh, he'll do so again tonight. Shona Candy is co-hosting this evening. Hello, Shona. Hello, Bushy. How are you? Splendidly well. How are you, be? Oh, good. I'm just feeling a bit far away from you at the moment because... Because uh, you're know, in Adam's seat. I'm in Adam's seat. Dun, dun, dun. So um, apparently we've got to tell Kate that I'm in Adam's seat. <laughs> and so we're, we're labelling this as uh, disruption in action, yeah. I think. If, is there a ticking sound now that you sat there and activated like the intruder alarm. <laughs> yeah. We're going to get to our guest in just a moment, but uh, a quick bit of housekeeping. You are still in the running. Should you choose to take on a subscription to 3RRR, you're still in the running for the major prize. There's a bunch of them up on the wall in front of me. Too many to mention. Um, but the Radiothon pay-up date and time is 5pm on Wednesday the 20th of September. You have Probably by then you've had about a month to pay up a subscription. So if you call at one minute past five, like you'll probably be black banned for life. You'll probably never, ever be able to subscribe to the station. There'll be just such furious outrage. But until that time, you're welcome to ring up. You can subscribe yourself, your pet, your artistic endeavour, your band, your business. Your toddler. Your toddler, your push bike. Jed, who has taken the plunge well, I, and subscribed? I some of those this evening. A uh, little fella called Charlie McCartney resubscribed. Um who's a toddler, Bella the Beagle, um, Melissa Steer Photography, all people very dear to my heart, so those people, and uh, Nick Bell from Preston, uh, Joanna De Weaver from Reservoir West, Claire Delora from Glen Huntry, to name a few. So people are still subscribing, so mm-hmm. get on to it. We've Indeed. Plenty of time and walls. Walls of, of prizes. prizes. Do you like beer? You could get 30 cases of Mountain Goat beer over a year. So you can enjoy that responsibly for the first month and then go back and start paying for booze. <laughs> he, he said with a nervous smirk. <clears throat> Allegedly. Um, there's a word that gets around a bit at the moment. It's disruption or disruptive and innovative and, and words such as that. And at times it's a buzzword and at times it's the most accurate and perfectly placed word we can use and this evening we're going to talk to a good friend of mine um 
a football football cohort from up in Macedon Rangers there. Um, David Platt from Resilient Futures. Hello, David. Hey, Bushy. How are you going? I'm good. Um, a bit stiff from Sunday? Um, I pulled up all right, actually. Mm. Have, you ever, have you ever felt hail hit your face like frozen blades the way it did in that first quarter? <laughs> Not quite, no. Mm. But I enjoyed it. It was sort of bracing. It was bracing, yeah, yeah. Like, who are those folks up north that jump in as the icebergers of Russia or so forth? Yeah. Uh, David, you are from Resilient Futures, um, and you guys do many things, but one of the key things that you do is to look at disruption strategy planning. Is that... Mm-hmm. The, That's it, yep. So. Can you give us a rundown? So we the word disruption, and uh, every time Malcolm Turnbull says disruptive innovation, I... Highly cynical, because I don't even know if he knows what it means when he's reading off an auto cue. But it's a very significant part of what we're seeing now. It's a very significant part of what human societies have seen since day dot. Can you define this for us, please? Sure. And, and that, that term, disruptive innovation, is actually something that a guy called Clayton Christensen out of uh, MIT coined about 20-odd years ago. Mm-hmm. And it's a very particular view of how you innovate through disruption. Um, What we look at is a more broader kind of systemic view of disruption. So what are the things that could impact individuals, organizations and communities that basically get in the way of them generating sustainable value, whether it's Mm -hmm. in their own lives, whether it's a business trying to do its thing or whether it's communities trying to sort of have social, economic and environmental outcomes that are sort of for the health of all. So anything that interferes with that, we see as a form of disruption. It's interesting to me to to look at the idea of disruption because to me the idea that you're disrupting something is based very much on the idea that it had a stability in the first place. And we live in a very unique time, I feel, in as much... I mean, we've had, um, you know, sort of seven or so decades since post-World War II of what a lot of people would point to as relative stability, Mm -hmm. you know, that we've had a lot of hiccups throughout that with, you know, the Cold War and, and various financial hiccups and all sorts of stuff. But for the most part... Um, we were a couple of generations in now to a large number of people, especially in Western countries, kind of going, well, this is it. This is human existence now. And so it sort of almost seems to me like we're, we're, we're a bit ill-equipped to deal with disruption and change and hiccups because we're so very, very used to this. Maybe in medieval England, you know, a, a child born and living to the ripe old age of 38 might witness three wars and three secessions of the crown or whatever – um, we have had a fairly stable run at it. Um, so I guess the notion of stability, how do you guys deal with that, that you're, you're actually dealing with a time in human history which is uniquely stable? People you generally don't think of it breaking. Yeah, we, we to, to borrow a phrase, we call that the long tail to a shock awakening. Right. Um, so stability can be a little bit deceiving in a way. Um, A a lot of what happens in disruption happens in an exponential sort of way. Um, And and if you think about the exponential curve, which is that sort of hockey stick kind of shape, that one, Mm -hmm. um, the sort of bend in the hockey stick is called the elbow. And we get a sense that at the moment we're sort of approaching or maybe in that elbow of exponential change. So we've had that kind of very long period of seeming relative stability uh, Mm -hmm. and we're probably about to get a fairly significant kick up the uh, up the hockey stick. So <laughs> I, I, it's one of the things that it, it's hard to crack through, right? So people feel comfortable, um, mm. but maybe we should be a little less comfortable with it. Might be about to happen. Yeah, sort of on that. I've had um, it described to me, or as a, a period of um, we're in a sort of complacent prosperity. You know, so how do you think um, that makes us? 
um, either able or unable to deal with disruption? Yeah, and, and I think the interesting thing, we're asking that question in, in one of the places on the planet that is actually among the most complacent. So surveys of, of countries dealing with disruption, Australia sort of sits around about 30th in terms of, you know, how, how important do we see it? Are we concerned about it? How might we see it? impact is it a bit of a sort of you know she'll be right no worries sort of approach but and, and that makes it sort of difficult sometimes to crack through people who've enjoyed relative success and prosperity for a long period of time um so th that's part of our job in a way is to kind of help people identify what their disruptors might be um, and i suppose kind of yeah how to overcome i suppose their inertia like the inertia in this system that we kind mm, of have yeah yeah that, that's right and the reality is too that some people some organizations won't overcome the inertia you know um, everybody knows the kodak story you know kodak had plenty of opportunity to not go down the kodak pathway um but they never really overcame the inertia and by the time they started moving um it's a bit too late do you i don't know does everyone know about the kodak do you want to elaborate on that mm. a bit further yeah. As, yeah as a really good example yeah okay well um kodak in effect, you know, is film-based business model. So selling lots of canisters of film uh, came very late to the party around the move to digital photography. And they were like um, a market leader because that's oh, the whole the term, like, they, you know, they, the Kodak what? moment. Yeah, they, they, they were the market leader. They were the market leader, owned the market really strong, one of the most prosperous companies into the late um, 2000s. Um, even brought out something which was a hybrid digital film-based camera as part of their kind of move into the market. Wow, right. Never really saw how that digital exponential kick was sort of happening and never put the connection together to combine it with mobile technology mm. um, and went from highly prosperous to bankrupt uh, in a couple of years oh, wow. around the, the just after the global financial crisis. But the sting in the tail for Kodak, and some people don't know this part of the story, is that it was a Kodak engineer in 1975 who invented the first digital camera. Yeah. <sighs> um, uh, and he just said put it away. Um, what do you think is different? David, with um, like now to say a century ago, because I, I sort of look at my grandfather's life and he saw motor cars, aeroplanes and man on the moon mm. in his lifetime. Yeah. So fairly significant disruptors, although well spread apart. Is is What's different? Is it the volume or the, the rate of change that's different? What? Yeah, yeah. So it's a great question. It's one of the things that we... You kicked off Bushy saying it's a bit of a buzzword and we say mm. it is a buzzword and it's not a buzzword. Disruption has been happening throughout the entirety of human existence. The, mm. the wheel was a disruption. Fire was a disruption. Changed the way that we were able to generate value. What, what we see is that the, the difference between now and say 100 to 150 years ago is the speed at which things are happening, the scope and scale of that impact and the fact that it is a systemic sort of thing. Mm. So something that happens, you know, as a small little pinprick maybe in northern Europe can suddenly have a ripple effect right through the entire global system. Mm. Um, so it's the, the combination of those four factors, speed, scope, um, systemic nature of disruption and, and the scale at which these things impact. So, you know, you had the Industrial Revolution, you had 150-odd years to, to move from technology to the next and so on. Now you might have... Yeah, like the introduction know, of the months. iPhone, it's, it's not... You know, it was very quick compared to 150 years, uh, abs absolutely. possibly even faster examples. A absolutely. I mean, m one of my favourite ones at the moment, which isn't even that new anymore, is a, um, a, a company out of the US called Otto, O-T-T-O. -T -T mm -hmm. um, it's autonomous 
vehicles, but it's semi-trailers. So they, you know, they move prime movers and they move goods all over the U.S. That company was founded in January of last year. Yeah. Um, they had their first prototype in May of last year. They were sold to Uber for about $630 million in July and did their first driverless delivery of 50,000 cans of Budweiser, interestingly enough, uh, <laughs> oh, in October. Bud, really? Yeah. <laughs> of all of the things to say went first, it was Budweiser. It was Budweiser. So there you go. So that's 10 months to go from company didn't exist to, you know, a prime mover towing a a full semi trailer full of fully uh, loaded with alleged beer without it without a driver yeah um, wow. and and the cost of that to convert an existing prime mover into a um an autonomous vehicle any guesses as to how much that might have cost them Mm-mm. about 30 grand us right. yeah right so but. very quick um with big impact well, I guess another thing you've just touched on is we've got a lot of tech stuff available to the, the everyone now. You've got 7 billion people on the planet, which you know, 100 years ago we didn't have, and a huge number of those people are now armed with smart technology, which is getting smarter. So I guess the input stream of brains, again, is this a, is this a factor, Dave? Is there just the sheer weight of numbers, is she, the population of the Earth currently all feeding into this mechanism? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the, the volume of data, for example, that we're generating is, is almost incomprehensible at the moment, again, going through an exponential sort of acceleration, mm-hmm. we, uh, but we don't really know what to do with it. So there, there's massive input, but I'd say we're still pretty slow and, and low on sort of making sense of what might truly be possible. So mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of you've got to kind of pay attention to a whole range of sectors and see what's going on. Yeah, on that kind of, I suppose, not knowing what to do with it, um, is, uh, like, there's examples of good disruption and bad disruption and or, you know, disruptive forces that have bad impacts, like, for example, your the prime mover example, um, no longer needing you know, truck drivers. Mm. Or is there things like, you know, the Uber um, phenomena disrupting, I suppose, working conditions, like regulations on working conditions and things like that. So, I mean, I, I come from a sustainability background and it's and disruption is usually spoken about as a positive thing, mm. you know, that we will disrupt the system, we will have a better world, you know, all that kind of thing and let's just work out how to do it. But what in your, I suppose, your, your strategy um, um, that you've developed, what about the fallout from disruption? Mm. How do you... You know, how do you sort of factor that in? Well, it, it, that, it's sort of the most important part, right? What are the impacts of disruption? We, we tend to take a position which is it's not positive or negative. It just is part of what's happening. Where it becomes positive or negative, is, it depends on what value you're trying to create. So we, we sometimes use the example of a rainstorm, right? So a rainstorm is a set of conditions which mm. occur. Um, if it's... If you're a farmer and you've been in drought, then rain is positive. Mm-hmm. If you live in Houston, Texas at the moment, um, <laughs> rain, yeah. not it's great really and not highly great. disruptive, right? So the, the good or bad is not about the thing. It's about what you're trying to do inside the thing. Mm. Um, so if you're trying to be disruptive, part of that is about understanding what are the forces that are at play, where can you exercise control, where can you be strategically kind of... Um, influential, um, and what are the things you can't control, and have to kind of learn how to to flow with, and, like adapt and, and, and build in, I suppose, adaptability. Yeah, yeah. We, um, well, as you guys know, the the business that we run is called Resilient Futures, um, and that that is about sort of a proactive view of resilience. So that's like how can you be resilient into the future or change ahead of change. So when mm. you 
see change happening, what can we do ahead of time? Where do we have control and agency as human beings to, to sort of own the change rather than mm. being disrupted by it? I suppose. But also, I mean, I, this is where this comes back to my point about adaptability is that um, resilience is not kind of just a a point that you reach like it's a it's an ongoing process yeah absolutely right yeah and and it's also a word that gets used in different ways so you know it's it's not a great example but i can remember after the the black saturday bushfires hearing about isn't it great these communities have been so resilient and it's like well it's not great actually they've had to pick themselves up after this terrible sort of disaster that's the sort of least optimal sort of form of resilience is bouncing back after a shock has occurred. It's like how do you continuously to, yeah. change so that you don't have to be in a situation of Well, it's, of either, it's either you, I suppose, avoid the shock in the first place mm. or do you put structures in place to kind of minimise the impact yeah, exactly. of that yeah. shock? Yeah, exactly. So but I you, suppose an example, um, if we're talking about uh, Melbourne, for example, say our transport system, so we're pretty much we're car-centric. We're very much mm-hmm. a car-centric city um, and we need... But if we invested in our public transport, we then diversify the ways we can actually travel around a city. Yeah. So that's, I suppose that, that's building resilience into your system. Yeah, that's right. And it's, it's diversifying existing forms of public transport and then recognising that there are emerging forms of public transport. So what happens is we move maybe deeper into a sharing economy. Do I not buy a car, but do I own a part of a car and is it an autonomous vehicle that I can book and I get into and when it drops me off, it goes on to the next thing rather than sitting in a car park all day and And there's also, I suppose with transport, there's also really interesting um, that I heard from... uh, um, uh, researcher that I know in, in Sweden, and he talked about how electric bikes, which Bushy is quite familiar with, the weapon <laughs> was actually one thing that nobody predicted, like particularly in cities. So they yeah, all talked right. about autonomous vehicles, and they all talked about you know more efficient public transport, and mm. all the plan, plan, plan. And then people went, "No, hang on, there's existing infrastructure, particularly in I suppose Scandinavian countries, European countries. There was mm. already you didn't have to change much, but you." you whack on basically an electric motor on a bike and people are like, woohoo, it's a motorbike. They didn't need a licence, mm. you know, they could just park it, they didn't need a car parking spot, they didn't need, you know, all these sorts of things. Mm. And so that, and that has then flown effects to things like how much electricity people use. It's not quite as much an electric car that might, you know, mm. ramp up, but you still have to charge the thing. Yeah, yeah. Actually, well, t- touching on that fantastic innovation that is the electric bike, I've got a. <laughs> I'll put some photos up on Facebook soon, but I've I've got the weapon at home and it um, towed a trailer the other day up to Wood End, which is pretty much all uphill. It had tools on it, it had some fruit trees strapped onto it, a whole bunch of stuff. Um, it's a six foot long trailer made out of an old aluminium ladder and some rat rod style welding on the wheel guards. Um, I've still got to get a couple of ram skulls to put on the side. I reckon that looked pretty boss. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that you say that. Like that's the thing no one. Saw coming. I mean, you look at that now. It's now that you're in that moment and you're on an e-bike or whatever. And you go, this is such an obvious thing because there was already people riding bikes. And it, you know. it's also a good example of a positive disruptor. Uh, because, yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, it, it, it's potentially a solution to getting people on bikes and fixing some of our um, traffic hassles in the morning. Yeah, absolutely. Indeed. Yeah, You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on 3 Triple R. 
And we've got David Platt in the studio this evening. He is with uh, Resilient Futures, and they are a um, well, they're a disruption and strategy analysis business, but they um, they cover a lot of ground. And uh, if you've missed the first little section of the show, we were just sort of defining what we mean by the term disruption. We're removing the buzz from it and giving it a bit of muscle. And um, it's probably good now to sort of we did a lot of chat just in that first part of the show about um, disruptive technologies and things like that. You know, the wheel right the way through to the motor car, putting buggy manufacturing out of business, so to speak. But there's a human story behind all of that, isn't there? So let's have a look at um, some prime examples. And, and look, we can talk about the response that the USA had last year in November to steel mills in Pennsylvania and coal mines in various states and, and, and you know, the, the, the continued downfall of huge parts of Detroit Motor City where Trump basically... Um, offered up the services of a magical time machine to take people back to the 1950s. Well, effectively, a, an unsolvable and undeliverable promise. But um, this is this wasn't just cases of areas where you know 100 people lost their job down at the hardware store or this or that. This is several tens of thousands of mm. jobs. And and there's a displacement. There's an inevitable flow on from that. So if we're talking about and we said before the break that you try not to define disruption as good or bad. You, they are what they are. They exist, but then the response to them is the key thing. How do you bring people along? Okay, if you're going through these huge technological changes, which inevitably create societal changes, how do you begin to be inclusive and you know, how do you inform people? I mean, we, I don't think we always see the best response from politics in, uh, in these instances. Have you guys got strategy? How do you talk to a community that's about to see job cuts, for example? Yeah, I think a big part of it is trying to have authentic and honest conversations about what's actually going on and, mm -hmm. and not sort of painting some sort of veneer of of hope over reality. Mm -hmm. You know, there's always hope, but it's like wh wh where are you going to find it mm -hmm. based on what's actually happening? So I think the thing that worries me as well in these situations, you get the you get the story painted with like a little vindictive touch. Like they say, oh, look, we're going to have to close the plant and there's 10,000 jobs going and the jobs you could have gone to have been taken by migrants and that sort of carry on. You know, that, that's not inclusive and it also doesn't solve any kind of problem for the people affected negatively by these changes. No, that's right. And it doesn't acknowledge what actually happened. So what happened with a lot of those manufacturing jobs in America is that they didn't go overseas, they didn't go to migrants, they went to automation, mm -hmm. right? So you, you have Blame to... Blame the robots. The robots. Well, yeah, and I, it's not about, you know, it's not blaming the robots and it not, not this sort of dystopian sort of future, but it's like that's reality. So when you say we're going to bring back... The jobs, mm -hmm. what are you going to do? Are you going to convince the company that we will put more people on and mm -hmm. we'll pay them more? And then does the consumer say, sure, I'll pay more for the product mm -hmm. that I'm used to paying? You know, so there's a whole system-wide impact you know, on both sides. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's positive and negative sort of all the way around. So we find in communities that, that the more we can involve just people in the conversation about what is actually happening the more they're able to point to the solutions. Because what, what does happen, in, in, we've been working in a community on the east coast of the U.S. called Bridgeport, which is in Connecticut, about an hour northeast of New York City. Mm -hmm. um, in, in its heyday, was one of the kind of innovation epicenters maybe of the planet. And I, I mean, I could go through a long list, but a short list. First in flight, they actually beat the Wright brothers to the airplane. Yeah, right. um, helicopter was invented in Bridgeport, as was the Frisbee. So quite literally. Right on. First and fine. <laughs> now, I've talked to... Um, yeah, Frisbee. Um, but, but, you know, so... We're, so you're in, but over the last 30 to 40 years, 
decline of manufacturing, mm. um, people out of jobs, depressed community, very little sort of working. Mm. But th- there's all this kind of latent capability in those people. They've got great skills and mm. they've got great talents. It's a matter of kind of how do you repurpose those capabilities into the future? So what, is it, what does a depressed community like that look like if there's a realisation suddenly amongst the people that they can you know, put their collective efforts, knowledge, collective wisdom into something new that they can... I know there's been a lot of talk um, about you know, Detroit reinventing itself in various areas. It doesn't completely wipe the slate clean of problems that Detroit has, but it certainly... Um, what what does that look like from your experience? Yes, yeah, so, um, one of the things that we've been watching is is a space that we call micro manufacturing, mm-hmm. um, and what it's not about manufacturing small things. It's a it's a <laughs> micro <laughs> business model, right. right? So it's like, how do you use the technologies that are emerging um, to cr- to to basically take an idea into a design, then into a sort of prototype that you can test, that you can then look at on selling or taking to scale or whatever it might be. So in some communities where they're, they're you know, it's, it's a sort of evolution of the maker space kind of movement, right? So you yeah. guys know what maker spaces are. Mm-hmm. Um, a more resolved kind of business model around that is, is giving people access to enough training and enough gear they can actually make their ideas into reality and then you kind of wrap enough support around them in terms of networks and people who are able to help you kind of take the idea to scale, um, perhaps go... To, to large-scale manufacturing, you might crowdfund it. All, you know, all the kinds of things that are sort of happening, it's actually putting a resolved model around it. So in a community, when a space like that is opened up and people are sort of told, come in and play with your ideas, yeah. um, not just kind of tinker around in the shed, but actually play with the potential to create a future for yourself, it, amazing things happen. There's yeah. really interesting products that could create it because, you know, you're the electronics engineer and I'm the plastics guy and we talk to each other and we come yeah. up with something new. How So how does a situation like that look? Like how much of the old model does it take with it? Like being that, you know, that is, is there a sense that the old system sort of be- betrayed us a bit are they more protectionist or are they much more peer-to-peer with their sharing i mean you, if you look at large-scale industrial manufacturing you know, people you know there's fleets of lawyers with um, mysterious briefcases ready to sue the shit out of anyone who infringes upon like a, a copyright or even sort of walks past the copyright and sneers at it you know in those new new community-based you know places are they more willing to share or are they more tightly guarded what do you see in that Probably a mix. Yeah, you know, like I don't think it's resolved yet. I think that's that's part of what's going on is we're sort of struggling to figure out how, how do we kind of make this work, right? How, how do we make it work for everyone, you know? And it's um, I don't sort of hold out this kind of imaginary future where everything is sort of perfect and utopia and all that sort of mm. thing. Like there's going to still be struggles and people are going to fight to protect their IP and they're going to want to monetize and all that sort of stuff that yeah. that happens. But at the same time, we we do see people experimenting with new ways of, of doing business, um, yeah. you know, of, of creating value that's not just about the dollar, you know, that you yeah. value health and you value well-being and you value mental health. Um, yeah. And, you know, you get... And that's important in communities. Um, yeah, that makes me... It sort of makes me think of... Um, so the research that we do at, at Vale and a particular project we're working on is different sort of low-carbon city scenarios. And we came up with kind of four scenarios and one was very much a sort of... There were two sort of top-down futures. One was kind of a corporate kind of future and the other one was a, a highly regulated kind of future. And the other two were kind of bottom-up, 
right? And so one was a bit like an Uber Airbnb future, which we called sort of networked entrepreneurial living. And the other one was like series on steroids, which was like uh, community balanced living. And the one thing that we, that, we that's found... series environmental and education park over here. Not, yep, not, yep, just just yeah. across there, diagonally <laughs> across from here. Sorry, yeah. in case you didn't know. Yeah. Um, very great, great place. I go there every Friday. Um, so what we really we, we went through a series of workshops with a bunch of people who work in sort of sustainability and the built environment and to, to come up with these futures. And then we had to try to come up with pathways to those futures. Mm. And I think what we really, I suppose, struggled with in these different futures, which, you know, for example, your sort of um, maker space but entrepreneurial would kind of fit into, mm. you know, one of those or the other or whatever, is that um, we really struggled with how to... Um, what would bring about these radical changes? Because we set a, a timeline to like 2040 on these changes. And what, what we really, what we're, we're sort of trying to write these pathways going, hmm, what sequences of events? What are the seeds now? How would they be scaled up into the future? And we really came to have that massive shift that we, that we need kind of for a more sustainable future is we had to have some kind of crisis that had to kind of, you know, reset um, our system. So I suppose I'm wondering that, how does disruption, how could disruption possibly replace a crisis? Because yeah, so, so, we don't really want a crisis because that's messy. Hmm. Well, yeah, that, yeah, crisis can be messy. Sometimes crisis can be good. We, we tend to think about those as catalysts. Um, so in, in the approach that we take to strategy, which is you know, helping people work their way through this, we talk about taking catalytic actions. Now, we all know, you know from high school chemistry that catalyst is something when you insert a bit of energy, it, it, there's growth and momentum out of that initial energy. So rather than crisis, we think about catalysts. So what are the little catalytic actions you can take so you don't have to boil the ocean? You actually go, I'm going to try that there and see what happens. And if that generates energy and momentum, particularly in a network, um, then you follow that catalyst. What do we do next to keep building energy and momentum? But if you try it over there and it doesn't work, you come back so and the, do it somewhere else. Even though it didn't work, the learning from that Absolutely. is still really critical. Important. That yeah. kind of ties in very much with an area of research called like um, living labs, which about they're very much about trialing different things with communities, though. So, so it's not just oh, we're going to test this mm. technology out here. We're actually they actually situated in a community, and there's you know more recently urban living labs, particularly how to you know create change in cities. And but this learning, this these catalytic kind of points. Uh, absolutely, yeah. There's no. If you're paying attention to what's going on, then the feedback you get from whatever action you take does tell I, you what I, I to do next. I mean, to a certain extent, I'm sure there's, there's knowledge behind it, but there's also sort of a trial and error. And I suppose it's accepting that some things aren't going to work. Do we have to change our kind of perspective that things that aren't work aren't necessarily failures? Uh, yeah, and I, but I, I think sometimes people hear that as like, just go out and try anything and don't worry about if you fail and it's not it's not about that it's just accepting that not everything will work but what you know if there's a purpose and a bit of design to why you're doing what you're doing um we always start with kind of really understanding the context that you're working into so if you don't understand the context it's really difficult to make smart decisions about what sort of action you might take now you, you might take an action you think you've got the context sorted you get feedback which says well we didn't really understand fully what was going on but now we've got a clearer picture so we'll try something else it's um it's a bit of the adaptive leadership model as well where you experiment with stuff learn from it experiment again go again type thing and that's probably newer thinking than the old way where we'll do this and we'll follow it until 
yeah. force it the till it breaks time. ten times. But then it's kind yeah. of kind of at odds with our our political system because it's mm, isn't it sort of political so. suicide if you admit you were wrong? Yeah. Well, yeah. And you talked before about the you know top down scenarios and bottom up scenarios. Our view is that you kind of actually need both, right? You need good thinking and good activity from mm. a top down perspective, and yeah. arguably we may or may not have that. <laughs> um, <and> really. You, <laughs> Yeah. But you also you do need sort of active communities and people who feel mm. empowered to take sort of ownership of, of, of their own futures. You know, yeah. nobody's going to sort your future out for you. Yeah, well, I mean, look, the origins and, and roots of this show, um, you know, were in, in permaculture, and you know, Adam, uh, you know, trains you know, several dozen people a year, and you know, I, that's part of the business model I work with, and that's very much about you know self auditing and self reflection and. Yeah, and having it, but yeah, a lot of what you're talking about there is community and adapting. You know, it, it does seem to me like you guys are on a very similar page, whether or not that was intentional or. It, it is. The whole strategy framework that we use is actually very deeply grounded in complex adaptive systems science, and we, we don't spend a lot of time necessarily getting deeply into the science of it, but it is based on how systems work and systems dynamics and, and understanding. And, lap, and, sure. and it's, so, yeah, there's lots of commonalities with. With that, those kinds of spaces. Uh, Greening the Apocalypse is the show you are listening to here on Triple R 102.7 in Melbourne. And uh, we've been talking with David Platt. He's from Resilient Futures. And uh, they do a lot of work with people and communities about disruption, uh, disruption to, um, to stability and to, to various systems and responses to it. Um, we've talked a little bit about, you know, responses and we've talked about, you know, the actual definition of, of disruption itself. The not so small elephant in the room is the really massive disruption stuff. So uh, depending on which news network you watch and which newspaper you read, climate change is an issue. Resource and energy depletion is a massive issue. We've built the last century and a half, let's say, on high-yield fossil fuels. Probably one of the most amazing things ever is fossil fuel energy, except for the fact that it will run out and it's not good for the planet. So other than those two big furfies... Not great. We have ecological um, system crisis all over the world where um, vast tracts of land are cleared. We also have, as a result of maybe all of these things um, and uh, debt cycles, we've got um, economical, economic instabilities here, there and everywhere and, and in a globalised system perhaps you know, closer to another crisis than we know. This shit is big, really big stuff. So big that it's probably pretty hard to really come up with anything in your head to, to, to front up to it. Do you guys speak to these issues with your work? Yeah, yeah we, we do. We, we sort of have to. Like, you, yeah. you, But one of the critical things to doing good strategy in a disrupted environment is not leaving the elephants sort of sitting in the corner and yeah. not raising them. Now, sometimes the elephant's too big that you can, you know, you got to do the old one bite at a time sort of thing. But climate, for example, <clears throat> excuse me, it, uh, and that's a critical global issue um it, but it connects deeply to that thing we were talking about earlier about exponential you know our, our brains don't deal very well with exponential change we're very no. we're hardwired to do cause and effect right that's how you survive stimulus response you know mm-hmm. saber-toothed tigers come and get out of the way type stuff yeah. so we get hardwired into to doing that climate change is happening sort of ephemerally i can't do anything personally to impact and i try this i recycle i do that you know it doesn't what mm. does it do what does it matter little thing too big right mm-hmm. um but the reality is that it's somewhere in that exponential change in you know probably ready to tip into another state 
And so we have to wrestle with it as part of what we do strategically. Mm. One of the things that I guess concerns us is that at the end of the day, a big part of this is about human beings and the impact on human beings. Um, and unfortunately, you know, a, a big part of the way disruption is impacting people is around things like mental health. Mm. Um, you know, so one of the biggest crises in America at the moment is opioid addiction of the middle class. Masses of the middle right. class addicted to prescription drugs. Yeah. Why are they addicted to prescription drugs? Well, because reality is a bit shit for them. Exactly, right? Mm. Lost my job, this, that, and the other. And, and that's, that's, that's real. Mental health issues are real. Um, so when it comes to dealing with like human beings and disruption, there's this kind of how do you wake people up? Mm. How do you help them see themselves as being able to be strategic as individuals in terms of the choices they make about the future? Mm. And how do you wrap a little bit of care and comfort around them so that if it does shock them mm. that it doesn't exacerbate existing you know mental health issues or raise some that didn't exist in the first place so we, we've got to kind of figure out a way to do those three things at the same time i, I, I was wondering is there another element to this too is that sort of not everyone's a strategic thinker and not mm. everyone really wants to be so within this within the strategic thinkers who are the ideas people and all that kind of thing what about the ones who, who are being left behind, the ones who are most at risk, I suppose, of mental health issues, of isolation, of all that kind of thing. Um, can you build into, I suppose, this strategy bringing those people along too? They don't have to be the strategic thinkers, mm. but they're, 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 they're part of the world. Yeah, yeah and, and our view of that is that we all have within, inside us the ability to be strategic um, and it's an innate ability that we just haven't remembered how to use. Like, we, we all behave strategically every day. Mm. I, I wouldn't, none of us would be sitting in this studio mm. um, if we weren't able to be strategic because we'd all been run over by a car or something on the way in. You know, there's, yeah. there's micro sort of strategy. So a big part of what we do, even with sort of we've done it with kindergarten kids, like is just teach them a really simple way, understand the world that you're in what what do you see is possible for you in that world what what might go wrong in simple terms opportunity and risk mm-hmm. um what is the sort of value you want to create in that context and the value can be anything for anybody depending on what age they're at what capabilities do you need to create that value what action do you take like that's a really simple thing to do we do it all the time we just when you talk about it as strategy we go oh, i'm not a strategic thinker or i'm you know i can't do the blue sky stuff strategy mm-hmm. is about making really sensible calculated catalytic choices mm-hmm. in the context that you're operating in you know and you know it's a, it's a bit like you know watching a flock of birds right and when they the conditions change they all go from right to left and nobody bangs into each other and they don't mm. fall out of the sky because they've got that little kind of strategic algorithm almost that's mm. in, in built into them and they just know mm. how to do it. And we, we really do think that not everybody can do necessarily big blue sky transformative strategy, but each individual can be a sort of strategic agent for change in their own lives. Mm. Yeah, I suppose that's, that's all very well, but I, I suppose I think about people like my nana, Right. Mm-hmm. Who's no longer with us, right? And my nana had very, she had very low expectations. She wanted, um, she came from a, not a very wealthy background, you know, one of 13 children growing up in a mining community kind of thing. Um, and all she really wanted was a comfortable life, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but she, you know, she's, she's not 
in the least bit interested in strategic thinking. And and her, what we call, I suppose, um, that sort of finite pool of worry kind of thing was really just very, it wasn't blue sky thinking, it wasn't anywhere near it. And I wonder, but I think the world is probably mostly made up of of people like my nana. Mm, mm. Um and and they're all these people are all contributing to these global problems, um, possibly you know un, unknowing or not really quite realizing you know the choices how the choices they make and fit into this this sort of grand plan. Um, I I suppose it's like how do you bring people along like like that? Mm. That's an interesting question, and just to add to that, because sometimes people. Um, ask me, uh, you know, like how do I feel about, you know, like a, a, a survival sort of situation in like in a collapse scenario, like, you know, like the McCormick McCarthy, the road type of situation. And, you know, I'm, I don't sit there, you know, praying for the idea, but I have a, a certain self-confidence and comfort in the fact that I have spent a lifetime acquiring all sorts of adaptability skills, both mentally and physically. Now, people sometimes respond to that when they say, oh, well, I'll come to you if there's any, any shit hits the fan. So maybe that's strategic thinking on their behalf. But then the other thing becomes, if, you, if you're putting all those people together, how does someone who feels like they're confident and could lead and everything like that, how do they then adapt what's possibly a little bit individual or small group thinking into suddenly a community of very worried people being around them? Um, literally and metaphorically, you know, you've been the last person employed in a street where everyone's just lost their job, for example, if we bring it back to a non-collapse scenario. Yeah, I, st- I still think a big part of it is is having authentic conversations, authentic relationships with people and, and understanding at the end of the day what's the value you want to create for yourself. Even, even Nana would have had a view, right, which is value might just be being happy and comfortable in my life. And that may not seem like a big strategic thing. You wouldn't necessarily even tell Nana that you're doing strategy, but you just say, okay, well, what what do you want to do to be comfortable? What What's the reality that we have to create around that? Understanding that it has to happen in reality. And I, and I think that's a big part of it. I said that a, a bit earlier is that mm. g- getting that kind of agreed view of what is actually real is yeah. pretty important, right? Yeah. So if everybody on the street has lost their job, um, that's a real set of conditions for that community. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't mean that you've lost your capability. It doesn't mean no. that you don't have value. It doesn't, you know, and it doesn't acknowledge all the stuff that you kind of know how to do and might already be doing. Um, so then you've got to figure out, you know, as a community leader, maybe how do you surface those capabilities and how do you reorganise them in a way that creates value for individuals and for the whole community? And climate change is a perfect example of that, isn't it? No one would agree on what was real or not real. Mm. Is the science real mm. or is the science not real? Mm. And, and what is the response? I think all the yeah. scientists agree it's real. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes, I know I agree it's real, but but that was but, the doubt that was created because the whole community hadn't agreed it was real. Mm. Well, yeah, and if you take a systems view of climate and you remember that human beings are part of a natural system, like we sometimes yeah. create this distinction, right, that we're human and that's the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, we're all living things as part of a natural connected system yeah. so i sometimes look at it and i go i'm tired of arguing about the cause yeah. what i'm interested in is the fact that it has an impact on me it has an impact on you guys an impact on my kids mm. you know my neighbors and maybe we've got a vested interest in sorting out 
a way of dealing with this that is good for people and planet because if we don't, I'd say that sort of concept well, it, it of resilience actually, yeah. isn't very useful anymore, mm. right? <laughs> uh, we've had David Platt in the studio this evening from Resilient Futures. Dave, how can people have a look at the website and perhaps do like some sort of a home audit for their own capabilities to deal with change. Yeah, so website resilientfutures.com, pretty simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we do do we do disruption readiness testing, which we do that for organisations, and we also do it for individuals, sort of looking at disruption in you, what's likely to impact on you, mm-hmm. and then what might you be able to do about it. So eat a little bit like doomsday preppers, but a bit more technical and science-based. Yeah, based. and not as many sea containers. <laughs> not as many sea, yeah, fair enough. Jed, thank you so much for panelling and contributing this evening. My pleasure. Awesome stuff. And uh, thanks for co-hosting, Shona. Fantastic. My pleasure. Thanks for being in here, Dave. Bushy's my name. We will see you next Tuesday. But until then, have all the fun. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.